It's been 50 years since uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, and um, not that just because it's been 50 years do you need to take a time to look at race and unity and diversity uh, and reconciliation. Uh, this will be a conversation that has to be had every generation, and it just is, you know, it's our generation's turn to continue to talk about it and move towards something that we're going to hand the next generation. Um, I don't believe that Facebook and an online presence is the way to this. I believe it's us as the church having conversations, making daily decisions that affect our children, the next generation, uh, the, the people we're around. I think it's little things that actually will cause the big change. And I think we are people who are like, we got to do big things to make the big change. But if enough people begin to understand the little things, change begins to slowly happen. And it's slow. It is. I mean, you would think we'd be in a place where we're not having to talk about this, right? Civil rights movement. You'd think, oh, we shouldn't be having to talk about these. But we will always be talking about these things, specifically when it comes to the life of the church, and namely because... We have been reconciled to God. He affects everything that we talk about. The church should be a place where we can talk about race, gender, sex, truth. All of those things should be talkable because we have been reconciled to God. That is the fuel and the motivation as to why we get to bring these topics up and not feel shame or guilt or afraid because we have been reconciled to God. And so I hope that this morning you're not like, oh, I can't believe we're talking about this in the church. We should be talking about this in the church. Like this is stuff that we should be talking about. And, and, I, and it's, it's, a, it's part of my journey and it's going to look different than your journey, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about Christ's story in all of this. And so I'd like to just pray, firstly... And invite the Lord to do in us what we can't do for ourselves. And that is truly the heart change, the way we see change, the, the thought change, and the action change. He does that in us. So let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that as we talk about something that the enemy would love to continue to allow to remain. That reconciliation real reconciliation, firstly with you and with humanity, would be important to us. God, that you would, would allow our eyes to see the way you see, and you would get us excited about your story from Genesis to Revelation, every tribe, every tongue, every nation around the throne glorifying you. Would it be something we rejoice at as well? Change our hearts, O oh God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Some of you grew up in an era when it was legally mandated to separate races. Some of you grew up with uh, separate hotels, motels, schools, uh, fount drinking fountains, restaurants, and the church. Let's not forget about the church. If a, if a black person were to walk into a white church or a white person were to walk into a black church, the, the shock and the awe... Because that era existed, and, it's, and, and for many of us, the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. So it's still something we have to discuss. We have 
to talk about. And the church has to be able to, because of the gospel, fuel the conversations. Not be reactionary. But what if we were on the move? And making these things something that we care about and we pray about as people who have been reconciled to God. In 1954, there was Brown versus the Board of Education that uh, said mandated segregation by the states and schools was a violation of the 14th Amendment and human rights. 1955, Rosa Parks sits on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama on a officially segregated bus. She goes to prison for it. And for 381 days in Montgomery, Alabama, the black community comes around and supports this woman and they boycott the bus line. And that, that movement was led by a 26-year-old man, pastor from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and Martin Luther King Jr. And he wouldn't tell you that he himself started the civil rights movement. He would say he was swept up into it. And it is this picture of his love for the gospel that continued to move him out to be a voice. There, was, there has been no voice like his in this era. And until the day of his death, there was no voice like his then. What's interesting about this, in 1963, King and a few other men decided in Birmingham, Alabama, which was jokingly or appropriately considered Bombingham, Alabama, because of the racial tensions and the fighting that was going on and the hatred that was allowed to continue, uh, King and 50 other men decided, hey, we are going to march and we're going to do a peaceful protest and demonstration uh, on, on Good Friday, and we're going to go and pray. Well, they were served a court order that said, look, you do this, you're going straight to jail. And the men decided all in their hearts this was worth it, and so they did. They went right up to that line, they knelt down, they began to pray, they were immediately thrown into paddy wagons and jailed. What's interesting to me about this story is on Tuesday of the, you know, the following week, King was handed a newspaper, the Birmingham News had printed a, this, this letter in response to King's actions that was actually from eight white clergy priests, pastors, kind of in a way condemning what Martin Luther King Jr. did. Now, depending on the books that you read, there are people who will say that these men were on the wrong side of history. We do know that most of these men who did criticize King's actions came from a place of, wait, you're, an out, you're, you're, you're from Atlanta, but you're coming into our city and you're doing this. They were wanting to kind of handle it on more of a local level, possibly. Uh, they were saying, why don't you just wait? Because there's some changes that are happening in our local government. Why don't you just wait? Why don't you just wait? And so people really heard this as a, you hate what he's doing. So depending on who you read historically, these men... They end up on the wrong side of history, but many of them we know do, did work for racial justice. So it's a hard line, but in response to King's reading this letter from clergy, he pens the letter from Birmingham jail. And if you've never read it, and you're in ministry, or you care about any of this stuff, it is a letter worth reading. And I wanted to share with you just a few few snippets from it, but out of this criticism, King pens this letter. He says, perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. 
When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that fun town is closed to colored children and you see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. When you have to correct an answer, concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. Then King makes a call to the church, and I want you to hear this, not because King hates the church. King has a deep love and affection for the church. In fact, he has said himself, there are deep tears of sorrow because there is deep love for the church. He is not trying to go around the church. He's praying and begging and pleading with the church We have to do something. We have to move. And he says these words. This was said 50 years ago of the church. There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when when early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of a peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. How prophetic, prophetic he was in his words. Fifty years ago, these words were written. And as the church, we have something in front of us that I believe is appropriately summed up in King's speech um, in April, April 3rd, 1968, King gives the mountaintop speech. If you've never heard this as a pastor or if you're in ministry, if you've never heard it, you can actually hear it. You can just YouTube it and just listen to the 43-minute speech. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's what he calls the people to do and how he calls the people to live out of this, this love, this gospel, this this. this this change that has happened in us, it's an amazing invitation. Um, And it's worth listening to the whole thing. 
But as he is making this, this, this declaration, this speech, he, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you've never heard the story of the Good Samaritan, it's about a man uh, who is on a journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he is attacked, beaten, left for dead. And what happens is Jesus is answering this man who says, Jesus, what do I got to do to have eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, what, how do you read the scriptures? And the man says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, dude, you answered right. Do those things. And in an attempt to trap Jesus or try to tell Jesus how to do things, the man says, well, Jesus, who really is my neighbor? I mean, like, come on. And I think we all do that too. We're excuse makers. That's what we do. That's what sin does. It goes, I want to tell Jesus, I want to tell him how to do things. I can trap him. I can trick him. And Jesus says, okay, well, uh, let me tell you a story about who your neighbor is. And so he goes into this story of a man who is journeying and he is beaten, robbed, left for dead. And then he tells the story of how the priest walks by. And so the Pharisee would be saying, oh, that's a good, that guy will help him. And the priest actually walks by this wounded man. So Look, I've given a, I have talked about a lot of awkward stuff and been in rooms for awkward moments. This would have been an awkward moment when Jesus is saying that the one who knew what he should have done doesn't do it, that would have made some people really upset. But then he goes on to say that a Levite who is also on his way passes over, steps over to the other side of the road and says, I'm not helping that guy. Okay, awkward moment. This guy should have known what to do. He did not. The third person Jesus brings to the front is not just another, you know, Jewish person. It's a Samaritan, someone of another race who is hated by the Jews. The Jews would actually pray about the Samaritans that God would not hear any of their prayers. Like, that's what they would pray. That's how much they hated them. So when Jesus says a Samaritan comes by, gets off of his animal, steps down, helps this man who is dead, left for dead, has nothing to offer, this would have been when everyone would have started throwing things. This would have not have been, a, this would not have been received well. It would have been taken as, you, are you kidding me? Who do you think you are telling this story? What is this about? How are you? And, and it would have been offensive. And King, in his speech, tells this story uh, to, to the people he's speaking with. And he says, you know, what if, you know, what if, what were the religious people's excuse? What were the priests and the Levites excuse for, you know, for not helping? Well, maybe they were on their way and they were, they were going to miss a church service. You know, he lays that out. He's like, they were, they were too busy. They were, they wanted to get to their church service on time. And so maybe that's what they did. Or maybe they were just like, oh, we're, we're too concerned about the ceremonial laws. Cause like if you were about to lead something in a religious ritual or, pro, or whatever, you were not to come into contact with another human body in 24 hours. So maybe they were thinking, no, we should, I shouldn't step, mess this up right now. I got this thing to be at. And then he kind of jokingly goes, well, maybe they were on their way to a, a meeting about the road system that needed to be fixed, but they stepped over the current problem in front of them to deal with the bigger picture. And then King gets to the heart of it and he says, I think I know why they didn't help, because they were afraid. And he says, could the priest and Levite's question been this question? If I stop to help this man, what will happen me. The question that they were asking was one of self-protection. It was, look, this dude could be faking. 
Like this dude could be laid out and there could be somebody in the bushes ready to jump me, attack me. What would happen to me if I helped this man? And he goes on to say, the Samaritan asked a different question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? These are two very different questions. If I, don't, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? Or if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to that man? And he goes on to talk about helping the, the, the city workers and, and being able to see who needs our help and asking that question. And he talks about it and he brings it to the climax of getting to the mountaintop where he's like, look, I may not make it there. And he was killed the next day. But he said, I have already seen it. I have already experienced it. I know what it looks like. So I want to be one who says, if I don't help that man, what will happen to that man? These are different questions. They are strange questions. And they are questions that are fueled because of Jesus. I believe the gospel changes the questions we ask and how we ask them. And I believe that Jesus is the only way to see the type of unity, diversity, reconciliation that we want so badly. Because we can see it, right? Like when we experience or we see injustice or we hate these things, we're like, oh, no. And people who don't know Christ go, oh, no. It's because we were made not to live that way. Jesus is the fuel that gives us what we need to actually do the hard work. Reconciliation is impossible without the root being removed. And the root of all human conflict is sin. We don't want to call it that. We want to talk about outside circumstances. We want to talk about the culture we grew up in, this, that, or the other. But the truth is, every single one of us stands in a position where we need to be reconciled to God firstly. And when that happens, this happens. And oftentimes, we will have to be the initiators of it, which is hard, which is not easy which is difficult. But because God initiated it with us, we, in response, initiate it with others. This is strange because it is not easy. And normalcy will tell you, you know what? Let's just let it go and let it be for somebody else. The gospel propels us It is what shoots us out of normalcy and ordinary into the strange, believing that the kingdom of God has broken through through what Jesus has done. And we just want a little, for better or for worse, a little taste of the glory now. And through Jesus, those things begin to start breaking in and changing how we live. If the scripture is true, if God's word holds up, then we are dealing why we can talk about these things, why we can move towards these things, is because if the scripture is true, then we are dealing with a new people, one new people, a new perspective, a new identity. 
that changes how we interact with each other. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays out these, these beautiful pictures of all that we have been given in Christ, and we talked about that last week, and, and just knowing that we have all that we need in who he is, but he continues in this picture of the church, starting in verse 14. He says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He brought it. He didn't wait for us to come to him, ask him for it. He brought it. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. So if you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. If you're not Gentile, you're Jewish. So he's like, I'm not giving you any reasons to be able to say anything about, about your, your, who you are, where you're from, what dirt you were born on, what, all the different questions and all the things people like to argue about. He's like, look, two people groups, those who were in the Jewish line, those who were Gentiles. He's saying, look, he's made one new people out of the two groups. He did this when his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility... Toward each other was put to death. The way to peacemaking is this. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, Not the ones who are the peacekeepers, but the ones who work for peace. That means you're, you might have to put yourself in a place between people at conflict. Dangerous, right? Risk-taking, Right? Hard. Right? Inconvenient. Right? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say that what he was going to do was any of those things? Because without what he did, we are still dead in our sins, without hope, and separated from God. That's the bottom line. But because he didn't say any of those things, you and I now know peace with God as possible through Jesus' physical death on the cross. Um, to give you a little bit of, of my story, um, and I've had an interesting journey when it comes to this conversation, and I've learned to love it, and it's been difficult. My story is not your story. Your story is not my story. That's not why we're here. But to give you a little background, um, I want to show you a couple pictures. Just, I'll take you down an embarrassing trail if it makes, helps make the point. Um, when I was a little kid, uh, this is me in elementary school, uh, that the, my skin was a little different color than most of the kids around me. So I, in elementary school, it was, I was the brown boy, okay? That's what I would be called. I'm not, you know, it was weird. People would ask, what are you? Very sensitively like that. What are you, you know? Uh, in middle school, <clears throat> I was the awkward kid sitting, you know, wearing the stupid colors. Uh, but still, in middle school, the questions came more regularly and it was about what I was and where are you from? We see that you're different. I'm like, nah, I, I, what? Look, I'm wearing Z-Jags just like everybody else. Come on now. Um, and in that, when I was in middle school was when all the, the my, my hair just got big and my mom would let it just get big. And people would run their hands through my hair. And old women in particular would come up to me and be like, oh. If you were 20 years older. And I'm like, what? That's weird. Don't say that to me. Then I've been like 30 and you're 70. That's still gross. But 
they would run their fingers through my hair and be like, oh, man, we'd love your hair. So well, you know what I did in middle school? Start shaving my head. I'm done with this. You ain't touching my head anymore, you know? And so uh, in high school, you walk around, and I'm the skinny, awkward, <clears throat> skinny, awkward uh, kid, and uh, that's me. All right, so you can remove those pictures now. Um, <clears throat> I believe they have given m- my people, if you will, <laughs> a term, and it's ambiguously ethnic, all right? And that means nobody knows what you are, and I'm okay with that, all right? Um, in middle school, you know, obviously being asked these questions in high school, uh, my, I, I've told this story, but my guidance counselor from my freshman year to my senior year, four years, folks, I'm about to graduate. And she says, would you mind you and your dad being in the hundred black men of Atlanta March? I was like, um, <clears throat> my dad's a big white guy. I'm not sure exactly how... How does it work? But uh, anyways, so that conversation happens. Um, You're constantly being put in these, hey, you're one of us categories. Like you have, I mean, people will automatically say you're one of us. You're like us. You're this, you're that. Um, My freshman year of college, I was in an elevator with all of my basketball friends. And uh, we're going up in, we're at Georgia State. We're in, I'm in the elevator. I'm in the back. And the elevator door opens, and it's this uh, black woman standing in front, and all of my black friends standing right there, and they look at her and go, hey, you can squeeze in, we're all black in here. And this, I kid you not, he turns around and goes, we are all black, aren't we? Like, I, I'm not kidding you. Like, this is, this is my life, for better or for worse, for what it is. And I have felt, here's the thing, I have felt the, 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 the sting of never being enough. Like, I'm not Asian enough to be really Asian. Like, I'm not, I'm not Hawaiian enough to be really Hawaiian. I'm not Samoan enough. I'm not Native American enough. I'm not, I'm not, when, when, when somebody looks at you and thinks you're black, you have this thing of going, how do I tell them I'm not? Is that offensive? Is it not offensive? How do I walk this? I don't know how to walk this. All right? But the point is, Like, my journey and your journey are totally different. And here's the thing. If I had not heard the gospel, if I had not been able to respond to Jesus' call to be a one new people, a one new identity, one new perspective, I would be walking with feeling guilty that I'm not blank enough. Fill it in. I would be walking with this I'm not enough concept. I would be walking with this, I'm, I feel this guilt for not being enough. Or, or I could be walking with this pride of, nobody knows what I am. You don't know my story. I could be walking with some kind of an ethnic or ambiguously ethnic pride. I could. I could because I fit in anywhere. I'm, I'm so, vi- I could be walking with an arrogance and it's ridiculous. I know, but here's the deal. Like, we can be trapped by this ethnic superiority, but we can also be trapped by a guilt for not being that. Where the gospel comes in is it does not let us put our foot in either of those places. I don't get to feel guilty for not being enough, and I don't get to feel proud 
over someone else's race or ethnicity. That's not what we're called to. And here's the, here's the beautiful thing about it, is that Jesus doesn't make me get rid of being excited about how he made me. He just won't let it be a divisive issue anymore. He won't let it divide us. So I get to be proud that my mom is Japanese, my dad's a big white guy, I get to love that, but it doesn't make me go, I can only hang out with people who are Japanese and white. It doesn't allow me to only run to sameness, because there ain't a lot of people the same as me. <laughs> but it also doesn't let me walk with guilt, because I'm not something. And I think we're where the church can miss it is we can take on shame or we can take on pride. And the power of the gospel, when Jesus invades his life, death, and resurrection, it's not about my story anymore. Like, my story is a part of it. But it's Jesus' story that is front and center. And if the scripture is true, then he has, he has torn down any of the walls that we will so naturally build up to divide us. This is the strangeness of the good news. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says it this way. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. As he's writing to the church, he's not saying, look, now you can just define yourself as you want. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, these may be your statuses. This may be where you're at, but it will not be a dividing line in the church. The beauty of the way the church interacted was early church, in the mornings, they would have this supper around a table for all the believers, the Lord's Supper, and then in the evening, they would have these, these feasts. And they were the strangest picture to community because, you know who was invited to that table? Anyone who wanted to sit there. Anyone who wanted to come to the table for this feast was allowed. And it was the strangest picture because men and women sitting at the same table. And for that day, huge problem. Slave, free, sitting at that table. Barbaric, civilized, Jew, Gentile. Everyone came around this table. And it's because the church was going, look, Christ has torn down the walls. We can't let them exist. This is the strangeness of what Jesus has done Galatians chapter 3, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ does not take away the unique way that he made me or the unique way that he made you. He does not remove the pigment from your skin. It is still special and precious to him because he made you in his image. But here's the deal. He will not let those things divide. He will not let those things be walls. He will not let those things keep us from unity and diversity and, and reconciliation. He will not have it because Christ tore down all the walls of hostility between us. One new people. And at the core, racism believes that one race or one ethnicity group or one skin color is more valuable than another. And when a heart believes that, 
actions follow. And that is sin. Racism is sin. Ethnic pride is sin, especially when it divides. I can be excited about who I am, and there's a difference between that and arrogance. And we cannot let those stand among us as his bride. I believe that true reconciliation, according to Scripture, goes to the root of the conflict. It does not just just say empty forgiveness words. It doesn't just send a check saying, I'm sorry. It doesn't just put a Band-Aid over it. It goes to the root. That's what the gospel does. Jesus goes where nothing or no one else can. And it is to the root of our conflict, and that is sin. And thankfully, because of Jesus' work, he has removed the power of that sin and the penalty of that sin. So he has gone straight to the heart. This is why I believe the gospel addresses reconciliation in our day better than anything else that the world has to offer. Why is it important? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 God says to Abraham in the very beginning, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is an announcement that God is going to do something through one man's family line that is going to step outside of that family line and be a blessing to all peoples, all families. It does not say to only those who are from this place, this place, or this place. It says all families, all peoples. And what you see in the Old Testament is a watch. You watch this man's family multiply from one family to a nation. And in that nation, there's the promise to King David that there will be a king that sits on a throne from that guy's line that never ends. That's a little longer reign than normal, like if it never ends. And Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament, and we know that Jesus brings this gospel to the Jews, who in turn, as they go, fulfilling this prophecy, begin to speak Faith, through Jesus, reconciling Gentiles who had no clue about anything in the Old Testament. And this is where the end of the picture looks. And it's a beautiful picture. Revelation chapter 7. John is writing about what he sees. God's giving him a little window. He says, After, I saw, after this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people, and language, standing in front of the throne, and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes, and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne, and from the Lamb. From beginning to end, the plan has been every tribe, tongue, and nation glorifying God together. It doesn't say that John looked into heaven and he saw Well, I see a section just for white people, for black people, for Hispanic people, for Asian people, for people who are kind of the ambiguously ethnic could fit in anywhere. It doesn't say that. He says he sees them from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So why would it be important to us? Because it's important to God. And ultimately what stands at risk here is if the church doesn't bring these things to front, bring these conversations as a part of who we are and work towards these things, we ultimately say we don't believe the scripture is true. That's what we're saying. 
Like we don't believe it. When we live and love sameness over the description God gives us, we are ultimately saying, I don't necessarily believe the scripture to be true. That's what it declares. We may speak it out loud. Oh, I believe it. But when our lives don't align with it, we say another thing. Reconciliation is needed when there has been an offense between two parties. And those parties happen to be a holy God and a rebellious people. And we know God was the one who initiated that reconciliation. He did not avoid us. He did not avoid us. When he had every reason to, he did not. He pursued us. And sin had to be dealt with. And thankfully, God took the first and only and last step towards reconciliation with us. And it was found in Jesus' death on the cross. Paul says that there has been a change in the way we deal with God from enemy to friend. This is what reconciliation is. It moves us from enemy, enmity with each other to friendship. God initiated it. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says these words, starting in chapter 5, verse 13, if it seems we are crazy. I love being able to say that and quote him because there are many times I feel completely insane having these conversations. I do. I feel totally nuts. Like, who's going to hear this? Who's going to listen? Who's going to respond? But Paul said it. He said, look, if it seems we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And honestly, at the end of the day, that is why we live. We live to bring him glory. And he says, and if we are in our right minds, it's for your benefit. All right, so if I behave myself, it's for your benefit too. If I don't say the crazy thing, if I keep in line, it's for your benefit too. Because it's all about glorifying God. It's not about glorifying me, how crazy I am, how risky I am, how crazy or funny I can be. It's about going, God, what do you need from me right now so that I can bring you the most glory? That's the question. So he says, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our life. One of the greatest threats to the good news, the gospel that changes us, is the phrase, my way. That is one of the greatest threats to this good news that transforms to change us. My way. Frank Sinatra's song of I did it my way is not meant to be applauded. It's meant to be looked at in the view of what Jesus has to say. It's meant to be uh, evaluated, looked at, processed through the lens of the gospel. Is it my way or is it Jesus' way that I love the most? And what Paul is saying is if I believe that Christ has died, that means I have died. My way doesn't exist. Jesus' way is the way I look, the way I run, the way I live. And that's why we said the good news is so confrontational last week. Some will hear it as great news, and some will put up their fists, and they will want to fight God tooth and nail till the end 
because my way matters most. But he says, if we believe that Jesus has died, we believe that we have died. Verse 15, he continues, He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we, here we go, so we, because we believe this, have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. It means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, new life has begun. You and I can evaluate people from our perspective, and we will, because we are human. We have all of our filters, all of our lenses, all of our narratives that we have gathered from our journey, and we will look at people through a human evaluation. But the problem is we will also look at Jesus through a human evaluation. If not for God's grace, we would continue evaluating each other that way. But because of what Jesus has done, we no longer see each other that way. We look on each other as brother and sister, reconciled to God through what Christ has done, brought back into relationship. How we view people and how we view Jesus has been transformed by God. We do not let the walls stay. And when we are letting them stay, we say, Lord, please show me where I'm evaluating and looking on people the way I want to look on them. Because I want to look on them with hatred, with anger, with with frustration, or I just want to shove them out of the way. Please show me how to see where they're at from your perspective. Help me know what's going on. And then he concludes... With verses 18 through 20, it says, And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. If you and I refuse ethnic, racial reconciliation, diversity, unity, we only show that we don't really take seriously God's word and what has happened between us and God. This is dangerous ground to stand on. And I do believe King's words that if we do not take the posture of a servant, we will close our doors. And truly a church that does not stand on God's words, not a church anyways, so their doors will close and they will be a country club and they will be irrelevant to the next generation. When we say Christ tore down the walls of hostility between us and God and that he did it between us as people, And when we live that, we declare a different picture. Romans 4, Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Romans 5, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends 
with God. As we close this morning, the band comes. So what do we do if we see that reconciliation is one of the stranger things the good news moves us towards? And I do have to say this is not just a call to one group of people. It's not. It's not just a call for the ambiguously ethnic people to reconcile to everyone. It's not just a call to, for white people to care about, for black people to care about, for Asian people to care about, for, for Hispanic people to care about. It is a call for the church. And if we are the church, we are one new people with one new identity. It is a call to all of us. So what do we do when we see the strangeness of reconciliation? Well, Matthew chapter 5 gives us Jesus' words. He says, So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there, the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice. So there is the practical of obedience to what Jesus says. If there has been offense, go and be reconciled. And I know this has to do with greater spectrum things, all areas of reconciliation. But if there is this going on, just trust Jesus' word. And you know what? If they don't respond in kind, you have been obedient to Jesus. That's the first place. Secondly, you can pray. What if your prayers begin to change? What if you began to say, help me see how those walls have come down and if there are walls in my life. Help me know if I'm looking through a human evaluation rather than through Jesus' lens. Help me see if that's going on. Guarantee you, he'll do it. So if you're ready to ask those questions, he'll reveal it. What if your prayers were, God, help the church reflect Revelation 7? Help the church be a place where that is what we pursue and we want to see. We don't know how to get there. We don't know what to do. But Lord, we know it's your heart, so help it be ours. Prayers change. Thirdly, stay in God's word. I believe part of the reason we are so drawn to sameness is because we do not love his word. I believe part of the reason we still allow disunity and sameness and, and, and not reconciliation is because we just ignore Jesus' words. We go with what we got fed on Sunday and then we're done with it for the week and then we come back on Sunday or maybe we listen to a podcast and maybe we're just like, I got that, that's cool, but we don't put our nose to the scripture. When you see Jesus' love and affection for those who are different than him, and that is everyone, just so we're clear, that is everyone. Everyone was different than Jesus. If Jesus had gone, I'm all about this sameness thing, we never would have seen him. But when you see Jesus crossing boundaries intentionally, your heart can't help but be stirred. When you see Paul crossing boundaries and sitting with people who did not practice what he practiced, your heart cannot help but be stirred. Knows in the scripture, to know God. Use your table as a force for change. Maybe. Maybe have conversations and with people. 
I don't know. It's difficult. It's hard. But maybe somebody has to start it. There are both systemic and personal issues that need to be addressed. Maybe the Lord would place you someplace specifically for such a time as this. Maybe you should ask him, God, how can you use me where I'm at to address both the systems that may be broken, but also the personal responsibility side of things. How do I fit in to that? And then lastly, as we consider the Lord's table together, Recognize your hunger for sameness because it's easier. Recognize that we have a natural bent towards things that are the same and that we're comfortable with. And say, Lord, do I need to lay that down for the sake of you being glorified? Come up with all the excuses you have. Put them on a piece of paper and go, Lord, you see my excuses. I don't want to be driven by excuses anymore. But this is where we're at. And it will always be something the church gets to talk about. Not something we're forced into. We get to talk about these things because they matter to God. So as we go to the corners of the room and we take the bread and we dip it in the juice... We remember that because reconciliation has happened firstly here, around this room we look at people where reconciliation can also happen. He is the fuel for that kind of reconciliation. He is the fuel for that kind of unity because Jesus is the head, we are the body. And so as you go to the corners, take that bread, dip it in the juice and say, God, thank you. Thank you for not valuing sameness (laughs) over reconciliation. But you came, you put on flesh, you walked among sinners, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and you rose from the grave, really, to to create one new people? Like your bride, your, ch- your kids, like one new people. We don't, know, we don't get to have the walls that all the rest of the world may naturally build. None of, none of those walls? That's so strange. But it's beautiful. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we can talk about this stuff. I thank you that we get to. I thank you that there are seasons when the church has to walk through those things. We thank you for those who have been voices for unity and diversity and reconciliation among the church. Let it start with us, Lord, and let it spill over. Let it be something that we value. Let it be something we pray for, we ask for. God, give us creativity. (laughs) Lord, I know this may not mean we just go out and scoot up next to an Asian person and say, I need an Asian friend. (laughs) Authenticity matters in all of this. Help us have eyes to see the way you do. Let us not evaluate each other from a human perspective anymore. And Lord, firstly, if we are evaluating Jesus from a human perspective, let us not. Let us see him as you have said he is. And that is rescue. That is salvation. That is freedom from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. We thank you for the bread and the juice that remind us of that this morning. Amen.